Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. The 11 unavoidable ideas are really one of the oldest components of our process. For those of you who have been around for a while, these are a variation on what we used to call our node one societal shifts. And these shifts were the starting point for everything we would look at in our portfolio. At the very top of our funnel, the first filter was this question of, Was this company benefiting from or negatively impacted by one of the societal changes that we've identified? It increased conviction from the beginning that we had a company that was in the midst of major change, and that's what we were looking for. That was our process. That still is. Whether or not it got into the portfolio or it was whether it held up under an investigation of its market size and potential or where that market was in its growth curve, its competitive advantage within its sector and beyond, its culture, management team, leverage in the operating model, and market valuation. But we always started with these societal changes. So today we have 11 unavoidable ideas in play right now that we think are worth noticing and thinking through at a deeper level. I hope you enjoy it. So fundamental to the work at Coburn Ventures is the study of change. And today we have 11 societal changes, um, but we call them 11 unavoidable ideas, which I think is a really helpful way to say, you might want to think about these things uh, sooner rather than later. Um, You're going to see them all around you. And it's a really, um, I think these are really helpful lenses to look through the world. So these 11 unavoidable ideas are societal changes that deeply affect every industry. And if we were to consider them a tool, it would be a tool to see more clearly below the surface. So that's why we spend time and energy and a lot of thought and discussion on identifying these changes or unavoidable ideas. And, um, and dig it in and making sure that we have a deep understanding of what's going on in society. Yeah, I was thinking maybe we should even call it societal changes that deeply affect every industry or seeing clearly below the, <laughs> seeing clearly below the surface. That's to the case a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I was, I'm all, I'm, where we get this, and, and we've been doing this work since oh, 1999 at least, is if you want to understand what's happening at the surface, we want to go one or two steps below that to understand the human experience more widely, the human condition, what is the key ongoing sources of demand, all, all those types of things. Without doing that, our conviction level is going to be surface level and we're going to kind of often be bounced around. If we can understand at a deeper, um, somewhat anthropological level of the human condition and humans and, and what we keep craving in different situations and what are the big things that are really under the surface affecting it? If we can understand those, that gives us a connection point for our views and our um, assessments of what is actually happening now at the surface. So this is a method of arbitrage. 
and I can say it's arbitrage because I don't know many people that are, are doing this. So if it has value, which always is up to you know, the user, if it has value in understanding what's happening at the surface, it is a space just like culture or some of the other things that we focus on where you can have an immense arbitrage, immense competitive advantage. Right, and today we are going to go through the 11 uh, rather briefly, but there are, well, there's a lot more material on each one. Um, and at the end of this, I'll put kind of the, uh, the associated podcasts that really go with a number of these as well. Um, but let's start with the, um, we're actually gonna kind of package together the first three because number one, it's called sustainable disequilibrium and nested underneath it are the next two changes, which are the information quantum change and the connectivity quantum change. So how do you have, tell me more about sustainable disequilibrium because it sounds like something that's impossible to do or like we're all having to stand on those, what are those exercise boards that you have to balance <laughs> on them all the time? That's what it sounds uh, like. Is that what we're yes. living in? I think that's a great one. And actually we ought to remember what those are called. Those things that you flip and they're in a half ball and you have to, yeah, yeah those are great for exercise. I can't remember what those are called, but know. that is exactly what it the is. Sustainable disequilibrium machines. Yeah, I think humans like certainty and humans we've been trained and we've built into certain professions like economics, this idea of equilibrium. And uh, my observation is uh, equilibrium doesn't really exist, that sometimes we, we come close to mimicking equilibrium or from a human's perspective that there is equilibrium. So when you or I look at the Grand Canyon in total, it looks like equilibrium and it has been for a long, long time. And so in a human 80 year time frame, the Grand Canyon looks like the Grand Canyon more so than not. Mm. When we're talking about markets and stock markets that are formed off of human activity, if the human activity is changing, it's not like the Grand Canyon at all. It's what is the pace of that human activity changing and then what does that represent into the markets and how we buy things and all those things. So my theory, I guess our observation maybe, is the pace of change is accelerating. That's not my theory. But under the reason or key reasons why those that is changing, the pace of human change and activity, is that we experienced two quantum changes starting in 1993. And I don't use the word quantum change loosely. To me, it it's represents a completely different world. I think we experienced two of those on critical core human elements. One was connectivity. Connectivity, not communication, but connectivity, our ability to connect. If we looked at 1990, the fastest way to spread news to a large number of people would have been the fax machine. And that actually is connected with the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was considered a miracle that there was this fax machine thing. Otherwise, like it would take a bunch of phone calls. And now you think about how quickly you could get a message out to 10,000 people. Any of us to 10,000 people would be simple, really simple, and it'd take like a, a minute probably. That connectivity and the machines being connected, machines, et cetera, changes all sorts of dimensions of how our activity could be construed. So that's one. The second one is the information, which these kind of go hand in hand. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. you know, we were connected to, you know, 1 million computers worldwide and then 7 million computers worldwide. And it, we're connected to anything and everything in a way that provides information as well. Well, if you give humans connectivity and you give them information 
some of which, albeit may be fake news or what have you, but information, you put those two things together, you're going to have ongoing ripple effects. Now, this sound started off cute in 1993, but all of a sudden you have cell phones, da, 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 this kind of, all of a sudden the ripple effects are going to create new rogue, what we call rogue waves. So the idea of artificial intelligence was not really a mainstream idea in 1995 or 2000 or 2005. It was somewhere around 2013 or so that the rogue waves were building because of information and connectivity, those quantum changes, those were building into it being a reasonable discussion about artificial intelligence. Mm. So that's an example of a rogue wave that then changes everything. We're not going to get back to this like, okay, now things will settle down again. We'll have a new narrative and everyone will just get behind it. Well, that's the, I, I wanted to link it back to narratives and stories because with, I think that you take the two quantum changes and in information connectivity, tie it back to that word disequilibrium. You can't create and have the stories stick fast enough to have that experience of equilibrium. And connect it to um, Yuval Harari's work. Um, I'm reading right now the 21 lessons for the 21st century that the humans being a very story-centered uh, species, let's say, in with all this, the pace of change so, so, so rapid, it's really difficult to find the story that sticks. There are many, mm. many stories and that, pro that produces by definition, a lot of conflicting stories. Well, well, and I'm we not saying truths, by the way, I'm saying stories. Right. In 2019, we called this same one, we called it change is the new lasting narrative. Yeah. And I changed it to sustainable disequilibrium slash rogue waves because I thought even the phrase change is a new lasting narrative sounded like it was had some steadiness to it. So I wanted to like even undermine that phrase by trying to create um, these, these rogue waves keep getting bigger and bigger in their impact. They're completely the opposite of equilibrium. They're completely opposite of a lasting storyline. I want to go to number four and number six together. Now, um, number four is ESG and the role okay. of business and society. Okay. And number six is the, I say it yin-yang balance, but you say yin-yang, and I'm sure that's the correct one, but I have the kind of like Yankee style <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> go for but, it. Um, do you think those two relate ESG and the yin-yang balance? And let's take them in pieces, but also combine mm. them. It seems like there's a real change in the balance of what we look to um, for business to produce in society. Yeah, I think that is, that is a, a clever connection. If I think of yin and yang, for, the, for those who want to pronounce it correctly, of course, but um, when I think of yin and yang, um, yin is a softer, nurturing community um, orientation. Uh, Yang is a power, individual, technology, logic orientation. Yin has romanticism in it. So we have these two things. And the, the philosophy says you need the balance. And a lot of people would suggest, many, many people would suggest who know this philosophy that a lot of our business world has been dominated by Yang. And maybe our world has been dominated by Yang. And so Yang leads you to certain products like oh. aluminum siding. It's very, <laughs> very efficient. That's not what I thought you were going to say. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
yin might lead you towards, um, you know, uh, what do they call island kitchens? <laughs> well, it could. Uh, well, it could lead to uh, great rooms and island kitchens that, you know, have community in them. So they're less efficient. Now you want the balance of both of these things. When I think about this connecting to ESG, the ESG is what we've talked about. It's about anger, not alpha. It's about a pushback on a devolved form of capitalism that hasn't taken care of the commons. And it's just been like an orientation of let it rip. Milton Friedman's orientation that it's almost a moral imperative to pursue profits says, okay, I'm just going to let this thing rip and I'm going to focus on one stakeholder, that being the shareholders, and governance will all be about taking care of that shareholder. The, the yin-yang balance would be, okay, well, we, a lot of things aren't working. Our commons have not done well. And that could be everything from the environment to our health to sleep deprivation, to obesity, to on and on, education, on and on and on. And what ESG is about is we need a balance of taking the power of business, which is extraordinary, and redirecting it towards multi-stakeholderism. So that's where I think that connection is. Now, multi-stakeholderism, that's a little bit soft. That's a little bit nourishing. It's a little bit, if you let that just go vaguely, then you won't have a balance either. But I don't think the threat is going towards multi-stakeholderism too quickly. I think it's just kind of pushing the pendulum a little bit more towards a middle balance. Those who have won previously as the single stakeholders might think that this isn't such a great idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but it is about this yin-yang balance in society, shifting both in the products and everything that we're doing. So the same conversation wouldn't have had a place 50 years ago, because again, business was more young dominant, society was more young dominant, and it seemed perfectly reasonable to have people just go for efficiency and technology and logic and power and let them fight it out and let them rip. Number five is the mainstream study of the mind. What does that mean? We've had a discussion with Erwin Kula where he talks about business was far ahead of, of humans and individuals in understanding psychology. And so we went through a period starting probably with the Mad Men era of businesses being able to really um, take advantage of all of our psychological weaknesses. Some of that is known now. That doesn't mean it's not still in play very deeply. But what does that mean, the mainstream study of the mind, and how does that apply to, you know, deeply affect every industry? Well, I think uh, sometimes, in, and as our group tends to take 100, 200, 500, 1,000-year perspectives, you start to see things that, you know, weren't the same 75 years ago or 200 years ago. Um, recognizing that the study of the mind is really maybe in earnest only 50 or 75 years along its path. So we've done a pretty good job of understanding our external world. We've done really not a lot of energy studying inside of the brain, which Gandhi said, you know, that's where all the action is, so to speak. A lot of people say that. So as we start to study this mind, that's gonna change a lot of things. That's gonna change how business is conducted. That's gonna be, give us some defense mechanisms to um, uh, restrain ourselves from our own personal decision-making biases, thanks to Diane Kahneman. This other orientation was we're rational beings. 
or you know those other people that make emotional decisions they're weak you know that type of orientation now it's like no no they, these companies are really smart at getting us to do what they want us to do we're kind of they can enforce addictions they can do all these terrible things so the consumers to quote Irwin, we're catching up and we're kind of as we catch up that changes how business has to do what it does i was just learning the other day i was having a conversation with Bryn. And someone said, well, they spent a lot of their time in the grocery industry as they were kind of growing up in certain years. And he, and he said, well, you know why they have the vegetables in as you come into the grocery store? And I was like, not really. He said, well, that's because you put a few of those in your cart and then you feel totally good about all the snacks and crap that you buy the rest of the time. <laughs> and he also said that, that shopping carts intentionally point down, which I did not know. Not all of them apparently, but the old fashioned shopping carts pointed down. So you wouldn't see how many things you've put in your cart. Oh. And they would also, most people are right-handed. So it's easier to grab things with your right hand. So they would set things up in the store for people to grab certain things with their right hand that they wanted to promote and things that the left hand, not as much. And I thought about how menus are laid out to get you to do things. So there's all this subtlety mm -hmm. of how we do these things. I think what happens as we go forward and we understand these things across the next hundred years, but it's not going to be a hundred years from now, we're building our, our speed here, that we're going to demand certain things from the companies that sell to us. It's, at some level, this has come into this, you know, we demand that companies be genuine. No one knows exactly what that means exactly, mm -hmm. but we'd say it a lot. I think, I think it's, I don't wanna get ripped off by companies. I don't want them messing around with me. I want them serving me. I want them treating me with dignity. I don't want them building some faux brand that doesn't actually tell me who they are, that they don't stand up. I'm really angry if people mess with me now that I started to understand how they've been messing with me. And my, the standard is gonna keep rising on this mess. Don't mess with me. Um, so you can be genuine as Ben and Jerry's and sell like ice cream that's terrible for you as long as you say that's what we're doing. But we're not gonna use little tricks around the edges to like mess with your mind to increase our sales by 0.5%. Um, we have one company that, you know, I won't mention who it is. Um, they were, um, they have a new AI initiative to increase their sales, a very large consumer company that wants to increase sales from like the two to 3% level to the four to 5% level. And 2% of that they think is going to be from AI. Hmm. So I asked our, our friend that AI that they're doing, is that so that the customer can enjoy more of what they have to serve them from an experience of serving the customer because the customer doesn't know what they could have? Or is it to manipulate the customer to get them to do more of what they want them to do so they can hit their sales target? And the response that the person said was, wow, this is sort of like an ESG issue, isn't it? Like is the company there to mess around with the buyer with this new tool called AI, or are they here to serve? Mm -hmm. And I think the standard of, I wanna be, I wanna be uh, doing my business with people who genuinely care about my best interest, that's gonna rise. This is not gonna be California avocado eating stuff for very long. Number seven is engineering serendipity or empowering the endpoints. 
Wow, we're going to talk a lot more about this uh, in an upcoming podcast, I think, with JP as well. Um, back to the quantum change in information and quantum change in connectivity. Because of those two things, it would be good strategy to figure out how to put more power at the edge of your business. So I think of the example of Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton. They want, they know that that interaction between the customer and someone in the, you know, one of their people on the fifth floor as, the, as their client is, you know, struggling with something, just leaving or trying to get in the door, that that is the moment. That is the moment. And you want to give enough context, information, connectivity, all of that to that end person to be able to create a great experience from whatever was going on there. A great, great, great experience. Most organizations are used to hierarchy and are used to policy and are used to doing their best to shape the consistency that might happen at the end through policies. I think of franchise agreements that might be 87 pages long. That's so McDonald's when they franchise gets consistency at the end. Mm -hmm. So where signs go down to the littlest detail because mm -hmm. they don't have enough faith that they could execute at the edge with consistency and with miraculousness or mm -hmm. with exceptionalism. Well, now you kind of want to have both. You want to have that consistency at the edge. You want to have your North Stars understood really, really well so that at the edge, that person who's interfacing with your customer and the customer and all those can create something that's magical. Uh, Gavin and mm -hmm. one of Gavin Ivester mentioned that, you know, the ability to make an exception for um, a, another human generates this, it's that moment that magic can happen, but you don't want that to be reckless. You want that to be with some North Stars in mind of how are we doing what we're trying to do. So it's this balance of now we're, we're crazy not to get the power there because if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it just because th this isn't a choice anymore. Uh, one of our clients said, hey, so you mean this is like really put the customer, really put the customer first. And I said, that doesn't go far enough. <laughs> but that suggests that the power is still in the hierarchy at the middle to, okay, now we're going to send a memo, put the customer first. The power is already yeah, happening. Yeah, they have the power to put the customer first, whereas the customer right, that, want to that, have the power. It's already out there mm -hmm. and it's getting behind that that's what's happening. And then why we say engineering serendipity. So we're not trying to dictate outcomes. What we're trying to create is magical things, you know, per the context of the industry, magical things at the end, at that end point, we're trying to engineer serendipity. And, and some people like think, wait, engineering serendipity, that's counterintuitive. Well, we do spend time, a lot of time in our world engineering against accidents. What is it that JP says, centralize what is the same and federate what is different? Yeah, it's a similar concept. Let's yeah. get, the, because we can get power to the end and that's where the power is because everyone has a mobile phone and they're gonna do it anyway. <laughs> like, now we wanna support that mm -hmm. happening. Uh, we saw that in military over the last 20 years where terrorist, in quotes, terrorist cells had that power way out. Everyone understood in their cell, what, what were the North Stars of how they were doing things? Militaries in the West are still hierarchical mostly. And there, there's good times and bad times for both of those things. But if you can get, take advantage that there's this extraordinary power at the edge, this human to human moment, well, we wanna kind of take advantage of that and do it. 
So this changes business quite a bit. And we were talking about some companies that have done things like this. You know, in some ways, the app store is all about that. You know, our phone is a conduit for us pulling up apps that we want that serve us. It's like, here they go. Or it could be Amazon does a number of things to, to make this happen. Google is the ultimate, like here, search anything that you want. And one that I really like, I got into a long conversation a few weeks ago with someone on Peloton, <clears throat> where they're really good at engineering the serendipity of understanding the different instructors, giving you that, hey, you can get on anytime you want. There's no class time. You figure out what time you want to be there. But there's different instructors, each who have their own meme, their aura, et cetera, depending on what type of mood you're in, et cetera. So they're trying to engineer the serendipity. And if you don't do that, someone else is going to be able to do it pretty quickly. This ties in really well with number eight, which is community and business. I think that's a little bit of what we're talking about as well, like a great company that can empower the, the endpoints also likely has a great sense of their community. And we've talked with Darren and Peter about this on another podcast about certain businesses that do this really well. But for today, let's just say a little bit more about why it's important and why it's, um, again, why it affects every industry. Yeah, what I wrote um, this year as my quick entry is community is a potent force, which is talked about, but vastly understudied the design of community interwoven into business is for all purposes, nearly fully untapped. Hmm. So I think we talk about this community thing. We have some devolved forms of community that have been inserted into our world. Uh, some are effective, but some are devolved forms. Um, and those have been pretty powerful unto themselves. So our, our orientation is that community or communication, those words are, are very connected, as you might the same root and all that type of thing. That's one of the greatest experience in, in humans that humans have, that we love feeling connected, but not connected. We love feeling um, in commune or oneness with other people in different ways, whether we're all Buckeye fans or whatever it might be. And very few um, it's very understudied, but very, very wanted. And we misuse words, et cetera, et cetera. We talked about Facebook to some extent has provided a weak form of community and some forces a very powerful form of community for certain groups, but it also has kind of tripwired an addiction of checking to see, am I in connection? Am I in community with people? So we're, and what Facebook has a trillion dollar market cap. That's incredible. So there's this immense value that's untapped. And right now we're at certain, I'd say either devolved forms of, of community or infant status community. Mm -hmm. And I think it's gonna grow. I think it's an amazing, amazing opportunity for people to build community into their businesses, but this, the tools are, are not well understood yet. So I'd look for that to be one of the growth areas that uh, we're gonna see behind the surfaces. You'll hear a lot of talk about it, but then you'll steadily see a lot of uh, intelligence put into that. So nine, 10, and 11, we have number nine, integrated worlds or vanishing borders. Number 10, abusive power or transparency, not abusive transparency, but transparency on the rise. And number 11, inequality. So you can see how these are definitely very interrelated. And we will talk more about them on future podcasts, but how, let's talk about number nine, integrated worlds and in combination with number 10, abusive power, because to me that seems to go hand in hand. 
um, if there's abuse of power, I'm going to look, I'm going to take advantage anywhere I can of those vanishing borders. And by borders, you don't necessarily mean like geographic borders. Yeah, that's actually why we changed this to integrated world because I confused too many people with my, my last title. <laughs> and then when the pandemic hit, I got a few calls from people. Do you think this uh, vanishing borders is actually now going the other way? And you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't just in a, in a you know, geographic sense. But what I really meant was all the many borders that we have or boundaries. And I've been taught that boundaries are insight wisdom-based and borders are fear-based. Mm. but that these borders are kind of giving way to an integrated world and that the borders were set up in to kind of fragment, you know, certain parts of our lives or to make sense things, organize, et cetera. The astronauts, when they look at the world, they don't see the country demarcations that we see on the map, for instance, mm -hmm. there's just one world. And so I think the pandemic at some level has accelerated this in this idea of work, life balance. You don't hear that phrase as much anymore, mm. but you, kind of the, the different forms of borders, whether that's family and extended family and friends. So it shows up in like friends giving, it shows up in you know, uh, family, family plans for Netflix or what have you. Or we've so referred to Coburn Ventures as a company without borders. Yeah, I think, I think we actually have grown to actually be that. Like the value is, goes all, in all sorts of wacky ways. Um, we actually have fewer employees technically than we've ever had, uh, even uh, after 16 years, almost 16 years, knock on wood. Oh, actually we crossed it last year. Yeah. So after 16 years, we have fewer employees than we literally have ever had, but we have more contributors than we've ever had. And we have more cross connection of value, which I'm like the first to say like, oh my God, that people are adding value. Hopefully we add some value too. But that's to me a company without borders that you don't really have a thought of we're in and out and, and all those types of things. Mm -hmm. So that kind of plays into, into that. The abuse of power, boy, I think this has many prongs to it. Well, first yeah, let's just stick in. It can be a few podcast episodes. And I think we will. Um, the abuse of power connected to that idea of companies without borders. So a company without borders it's, it's one organizational field, as Grant McCracken might say. In hmm. the abuse of power meets business, it was incredibly well chronicled by Michael Porter in 1979 in his model of Porter's Five Forces was, hmm. no, no, there's not one organizational field. There are distinct parts. And the goal of each part, whether you're an employee, whether you're a supplier, whether you're management, whoever you are, the goal is to gain power. And that was to control your fate so you could leverage it against other people. And, and businesses- build your business. And that was seen as the only way to build your business. Build your business. And ultimately one of those forms would be to you know, control the customer experience. And that's a fancy kind of way that um, it's kind of like owning the customer or capturing the customer. Those, mm -hmm. We don't want to hear those phrases so much anymore. That would be considered an abuse of power today, a little bit more. And JP reminded me the other, the other day that, well, we don't say those words, but we do still say moat. So <laughs> we wouldn't say I own the customer, but you might say we have a great moat around our business. Under Implied underneath is we can control the customer outcome. The customer okay. cannot escape. <laughs> they can't escape. <laughs> they can't we swim can raise the prices. 
yeah, we can raise prices. And I think what we'll see in business, and even Michael Porter himself is, is referring, I guess, Brendan, the phrase that he uses is shared value. Mm-hmm. So shared value is consistent with one organizational field where the values being moved in all sorts of different ways at different times, where you'll get the customer is involved in the R&D process. Hmm. And yeah. happily, excitedly contributing to the R&D process. And you don't know where the supplier and the company, like, you know, where does it end? Where does it start? We think about Apple in relationship to Foxconn. Like that's very fluid, very flowing, or TSMC in relationship to all of its partners. So this orientation of leverage and Porter's Five Forces started to give way in the 90s towards this idea of partnership, but people didn't really mean it. Now, if you're going to have a great business going forward, being in partnership with everyone in your organizational field is going to be really, really important. Otherwise, you'll get found out and someone else will do it better. And, And this goes hand in hand with privacy and data collection and, and all of those things as well. Absolutely. There's a great quote in the piece that I just, it, 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 it's a little eerie. The more the data banks record about each one of us, the less we exist by Marshall McLuhan. Who, that must have been what, 60 years ago he said that? I mean, if he's referring to data banks, <laughs> we don't even say that anymore. <laughs> it's very interesting how you're so attracted to that one, Brent. Very, very eerie. You're seeing uh, your dark side. It's no, I just anomaly. Exciting. I just wish more people were writing about Marshall McLuhan right now. Because <laughs> so, I think there's so many things like the media is the message. We could take that through each one of these changes as well. What's really happening with how how our uh, relationship with media has changed, and what is what is the message there? And there's a lot. Uh, I think we're getting a teaser of Bryn's next piece that's coming out in 2023. Um, so the last one is inequality. Last but not least, inequality. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, tell us. It's, it's kind of interesting. That up, Pip. Uh, yeah, it's number 11. And I did order these in terms of power. And this morning, as I was thinking about it, like it's number 11 and it barely cracks on because one of the things I've said for, I don't know, 10 years is social problems don't become stock market problems until they become business problems. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the school systems in inner city being horrible, not a business problem. Well, <laughs> the, the, the question is how quickly these societal problems are going to become business problems. And, and I think it's probably going to be sooner than later. And it's going to take different forms. We see even in the tax rates that are being considered, that's an actual action possibly from anger or from fairness or whatever phrase you want to come that is going to potentially alter the cash flows you get from businesses or your reinvestment rates or all those types of things. Um, But why this one I think is going to go from number 11 to maybe in the top three, 10 years from now is that it's, it's a deep anger and it's not going to be uh, it's not an anger that can be satisfied easily. So the first inequality is a big, very important. I'm not undermining the importance of what I'm about to say. It's vast and it's vague. And in our change study, if you have demands that are big, important, vast, and vague, they become unsatisfiable because there isn't a specific thing we can do to attend to that. So for example, what if we cap the pay of CEOs at some X level? Well, that's fully satisfied. Nope. How about if we uh, 
alter the certain minimum living wage? Nope. What about giving larger amounts to community charities if you're a business? That won't do it. What if groceries open and operate at a loss in a way to mitigate food deserts in inner cities? No, none of those things. Those things are consistent with attending to some of the complaint, but they're not satisfying. I think, now what I do say is, what if business wakes up, grows and expresses its heart, defines what dignity is and operates unflappably with that idea, and steadfastly jumps into bridging capitalism and societal well-being. Would that do it? Yes. Now, is that likely to happen anytime soon? No. <laughs> so, and that's, that still would be a experience of feeling, but this is not something that's gonna be easily kept. So I, I sense that this has been growing for 20 years, let's say, as a, a backbeat, and that backbeat is gonna grow and grow and grow. And then it's gonna start to wind up at the doorstep of actual businesses little by little and then probably fast and you'll see the floodgates open that capitalism socialism communism all have had a devolved form of each of those ideas that's led to um, really bad outcomes at the societal level and business is only here to support societal well-being that's a shocking thought to most investors they have to go oh really yeah like <laughs> what's the pro the arguments of all these economic systems are to support the well-being of society and none of them have been like doing it very well and as these complaints about inequality grow as a meme i think it's going to wind up at the doorstep fairly quickly to businesses now So earlier in the conversation, I promised to provide a couple of the podcasts that do go into deeper detail on some of these unavoidable ideas. And I'm just picking out four. There are more. And I think we will do more podcasts related to these big ideas in the future. But here are four for today uh, in no particular order. Number 25 is Erwin Kula on the mainstream study of the mind. Number four um, this is the one about the customer contributing to R&D that we just mentioned. That's with Lenley Hensarlene. Number 49, Michael Stick on digital transformation. And number 41 on ESG with Omar Sheikh and David Kim. So I hope you enjoy those. If you haven't already heard them, they're a great one to go back to as one of the modes for, for spending a little bit more time and thinking deeply on some of these changes and how they might apply to your business and your portfolio as well. Thanks for listening.